I remember when Rabbi Sachs, before he became chief rabbi, wrote a series of pamphlets about what he would like to do for, for British jury. And I read them as a yeshiva student. And I remember thinking I would give up years of my life for this man because he has so much vision and so much to give in such a beautiful Jewish, traditional, observant, gentle way. And I don't think you could be more inspired than that. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Today, the 20th of Cheshvan, is the second yard site of Lord Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs Zetzal. His impact was enormous, and in so many ways, his life represented a sanctification of the divine name. I never met Rabbi Sachs, though there's no question that his thought has greatly impacted the way I see the world. I can, however, attest to his personal generosity from one interaction that I did have. In the summer of 2014, I wrote to Rabbi Sachs with some questions about Rav Soloveitchik's understanding of revelation based on what the Rav wrote in his book, The Halachic Mind. If I recall correctly, I immediately received an automatic reply explaining that Rav Sachs can't answer every email given the large number that are sent to him every day. And I do understand that. In my own very small way, I sometimes get emails from listeners that I mean to respond to, but I regretfully simply lack the time. If that's true for me... That issue was undoubtedly far, far more acute for Rabbi Sachs. So I figured that I wouldn't hear back. But two weeks later, lo and behold, Rabbi Sachs sent a thoughtful reply dealing directly with the questions I'd asked. I'm sure he had no idea who I was. And the fact that he responded to my questions was a type of thrill and, more to the point, a sign of his personal graciousness and kindness. Despite this interaction, and while I've read a lot of what Rabbi Sachs has written, I knew very little about him as an individual. To that end, I was honored to host Joanna Benaroche, Rabbi Dr. Daniel Rose, and Rabbi Gideon Sylvester to tell me about Rabbi Sachs as a human being. This episode is part one. In part two, we'll discuss Rabbi Sachs' philosophy and theology. Before we begin the conversation, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate The Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for The Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffeehouse podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team, too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, podcasting gets more popular every day, and that means that there are two important pieces of information you have to have. First, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way of reaching hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. And second, if you want to have a podcast, you need to make sure that it's well-produced so that you can be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. So if you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people, or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds or thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality, and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high quality, entertaining, and above all, effective podcast. 
Rabbi Dr. Daniel Rose is a Jewish educator with over 30 years experience working in informal and formal Jewish education. He has taught, developed curriculum, and consulted for Jewish day schools around the world, and lectured in Jewish education in various institutions and universities, including Pardes, the Hebrew University, Tel Aviv University, and the London School of Jewish Studies. Daniel is currently Director of Education at Koran Publishers, where he has developed several educational sidurim and is now working on an exciting new Tanakh project. He also has an educational role at the Rabbi Sachs Legacy Trust, developing programs, curriculum, and educational resources to further the teaching and legacy of Rabbi Sachs Zetzal. Daniel lives in Modi'in with his wife and five children. Joanna Benarosh has been involved in the Jewish community for almost 30 years, working with many communal organizations, synagogue bodies, community professionals, and individuals, and is a qualified accountant. Joanna joined the chief rabbi's office in 1997, working for Rabbi Sachs for 24 years. As executive director, Joanna had responsibility for running a very busy public office with multifaceted roles, managing a team, and supporting Rabbi Sachs in his day-to-day activities. When Rabbi Sachs stepped down as chief rabbi in 2013, Joanna transitioned to jointly run his private office. Since Rabbi Sachs' passing in November 2020, Joanna has established the Rabbi Sachs Legacy Trust to continue to perpetuate and promote Rabbi Sachs' values and teachings. Rabbi Gideon Sylvester currently serves as the British United Synagogue's rabbi in Israel and teaches at a number of religious and secular programs. He is a student of Rabbi Sachs and served under him as rabbi of Radlett United Synagogue, turning it from a fledgling synagogue into Britain's fastest-growing modern Orthodox community. Rabbi Sylvester has contributed essays to two festrifts in honor of Rabbi Sachs. Rabbi Gideon Sylvester, Joanna Benarosh, and Rabbi Dr. Daniel Rose, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Today we're going to be speaking about the great Rabbi Sachs, who was a unique thinker, someone whose writing has given me and so many other thousands, if not millions of people across the world, intellectual nourishment, spiritual nourishment. And we will talk about his intellectual achievements in our next episode. But today I'd like to hear more about Rabbi Sachs, the individual, the person, the leader as a human being. Joanna, can we start off with you? Can you talk a little bit about your connection personally to Rabbi Sachs, how you knew him, how you were involved with what he was doing, and what he was like as an individual? Absolutely. It'd be my pleasure and an honor. And thank you very much for inviting us, um, Scott, to be with you today. I got to know Rabbi Sachs actually in the early 90s. Um, when he took up office in 1991, Rabbi Sachs was very concerned about what Anglo Jewry, British Jewry, was going to look like in 20, 25 years' time. He was never worrying about tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, but where were we going as a community? Um, and it really bothered him watching what was going on in the States and the, and the levels of outmarriage that were rising. Um, and he felt that Anglo-Jewish community needed to shift its focus from looking through rose-colored spectacles at the days that used to be, the wonderful days that that were, um, to what we could what we could create as a community going forwards. And so he he actually created an organization called Jewish Continuity, which was um, and um, Rabbi Sylvester will will remember this, which was meant to really reinvigorate the community, have a make make us proud to be Jewish um, and invited communities from and from across Great Britain to put forward proposals for projects that they could run to reinvigorate their communities. And it wasn't just in education, it was cultural, um, it was uh, music and theatre, but bringing people 
back to their Judaism in, in whichever ways they felt they could connect. Um, and I was lucky enough to be invited to join Jewish Continuity at its inception. Uh, my interview was around um, a garden table um, in, a, in a lovely office in Belsize Park. And we I had three amazing, amazing years at Jewish Continuity. And from there, I was invited to join Simmer Weinberg, who was one of my uh, colleagues in continuity, to move over to the chief rabbi's office. Um, Jonathan Kestenbaum, who was the first um, chief executive of, of the chief rabbi's office um, under Rabbi Sachs, um, stepped down in late 96. And there'd been a bit of a hiatus. And Simmer and I joined the office in 1997. I actually went for my interview with the chief rabbi, pregnant with my third child. So I was living continuity um, and with a broken ankle. And I'm still here to tell the tale. He saw something in Simmer and I that we certainly didn't see in ourselves. And um, it was an, an absolute honor and um, such a privilege to, to be by his side. What what I joined as the um, sort of operations director, if you like, um, responsible for the, for the financial side of the office. And in 2010, I was promoted to executive director and I was running the office for the last three years of, of his chief rabbinate. But incredibly, in 2011, he said, I'm going to be stepping down when I'm 65 and I would like you to uh, join me in the next stage of my journey um, and set up. Um, what he calls LP, long the the long period, which was I think um, Beethoven. What's the next period after the chief rabbinate? What did that look like? And so we were running the chief rabbi's office and and doing this amazing last two years in office and planning the next stage of of the journey with him, um, which was an enormous privilege. Um, and also, you know, over that period of time, he became he was very close to our family. He was at um, the bris for both of my sons. He was at one of my son's bar mitzvahs. He married my daughter and he cared passionately about who, who was working for him. Um, we had the, the honour and privilege to host him in our, in our sukkah, three sukkots in a row when he moved out of uh, St. John's Wood. And it's just, he was a person, he was a person that you were learning from every day. He was a lifelong learner. He considered himself to be someone who needed to learn something new from every walk of life, from whether it was reading books or listening to music, watching or listening to a podcast or watching a film, something or, or reading an article in the paper. He needed to learn from everything that he came across every day, all the conversations that he had. He was constantly learning and felt that someone that other people had things to teach him. Um, this was a constant theme of his throughout his life. I always remember when, whenever he prepared for an event or, or anything, you know, not only did he want to know um, who he was speaking to in the audience, but what did they need to hear? What what was on their minds at the moment? He wasn't giving set speeches. He said he 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 told us always, you know, I never ever give an off the pegs talk. I need to everything needs to be bespoke. It needs to be where I need to reach them where they are. So that preparation for him was was absolutely of paramount importance. And listening to other people, there was an, uh, an active listening that he built into absolutely everything that, that he did. And I was actually I was thinking about it the other day. Um, you know, preparation is everything. I once I was just meeting with um, with the rabbi of Dunstan Road and I remember him calling me one summer. And that was Rabbi Sachs's local community when he stepped down as chief rabbi and I remember he called me and said Joanna I'm going to be away over the summer would Rabbi Sachs um, step into the breach a couple of uh, Shabbatot so I called Rabbi Sachs and I said you know is it okay can I put these two times in, in your diary and he said to me Joanna 
whenever I go to shawl, I've got a drusha in my pocket just in case. We never took anything for granted. It was preparation, preparation, preparation. So much, you know, that we learn from him across the years. Okay, well, thank you, Joanna. Rabbi Sylvester, can you tell us about your connection on a personal level with Rabbi Sachs, how you knew him and what you learned from him? Sure. So, so first of all, I, I had the privilege of living around the corner from the synagogue where Rabbi Sachs began his career as a rabbi. Um, so although that wasn't our synagogue, uh, we were all very aware um, of the talk and the buzz around this dynamic, young, brilliant rabbi um, who was who was speaking in the Dunstan Road Synagogue. So he was very much on my horizon for, from childhood. Um, and then as I became a student, I started reading the books um, and I was completely blown away by them um, and deeply, deeply inspired by them. It just seemed to me uh, that I'd found a rabbi who spoke with such warmth and such intelligence um, and such a, a grasp of the issues of our times. Um, I remember after he passed away, someone spoke about him being like a father figure. Um, I didn't look on him as a father figure. To me, he was much more like an older brother um, in the sense that he was someone who was constantly exploring the same issues that were on my mind, um, except that he was many, many, many chapters ahead um, in his brilliant thinking. Um, but it wasn't like someone looking down on me. It was like someone who was who was really sharing the issues of faith um, that were my issues. Um, I think that the major moment where where I got to know him was during his year um, when he was appointed chief rabbi. He asked to spend a year in Israel studying, um, and he took time to meet with those of us who were studying to be rabbis. He was preparing to be chief rabbi. We were studying to be rabbis, and we were deeply excited um, at the prospect of having him as our leader, as having uh, a young visionary leader. Um, and he arranged a number of meetings uh, where we went to see him and he talked about his future leadership. He asked us with the great modesty that Joanne has been describing, he asked us to be his watchdogs, um, which I think was very, very sweet. Um, I at the What did he mean by that? I think he meant, first of all, I, I don't really know. I suspect he meant that British jury has an enormous capacity to... I have to be careful of my language. <laughs> I have to be very careful of my language here. Uh, it doesn't like change and, and it moves very slowly. Um, and and it, he was very keen to make change and he was very keen not to become just another sort of old fashioned portrait on the walls of great buildings, um, another history of the chief rabbis. He was there to make a difference. And that was what he was absolutely committed to do. And he asked us as the young upstarts to make sure that he stuck to that mandate. Um, I was in Israel at the time. I was on a fellowship to become a teacher, but I was very keen to do smicha. Um, and there was kind of tension around the fact uh, over whether I'd be allowed to spend longer in yeshiva and study uh, more um, to prepare for that. Um, and I went to see Rabbi Sachs to discuss it. Um, and he was wonderful. He sat with me. Um, and first of all, he spoke to me at length about issues that he'd had in his career um, and disappointments that he'd had and the initial difficulties that he'd had in getting a job, uh, which was just very, very, very lovely and very, very, very calming. I was very young. He was on the peak of greatness. Um, and yet with that modesty, he, he, he shared with me his, his own experiences. 
Um, and then the second thing he said to me in that meeting, which to me was very Rabbi Sachs, was he said, he, he gave me lots of practical advice. He offered as much help as he possibly could to intervene on my behalf. And then he said, and you have to go and talk to God. You have to go and dove him. Um, and I remember getting up from that meeting um, and walking to the Kotel um, and going to Davin. And I very often think of him um, in moments of difficulty, um, his advice, go and Davin. And for me, that was very much the Rabbi Sachs. It was the very warm, very loving, very brilliant um, friend. And also a man who I think, and the more I think of him, the more I realize it, a man who was deeply, deeply religious, even though he wore it very lightly. Um, and and I draw enormous inspiration from that. Before we move on to Rabbi Rose, I just want to understand better Rabbi Sylvester. When you say you were his student, what was the context in which you were his student? Um, so I wasn't his student in, in any formal sense. And in fact, I once asked him if I could be, um, and he was very adamant um, that he was not there to create clones. I think later in his career, towards the end of his career, he became much more interested in mentoring a next generation. Um, in our time, he didn't want to do that. Um, but through constantly reading his books, to me, he was the model um, of, of brilliant, thoughtful, connected, contemporary rabbinate. And and I very much saw him as that. To, to me, I remember even in, when, in my days in yeshiva, um, being deeply inspired. Um, there's a famous story of the of the great. I mean, if you if you want me to put it in the bluntest terms, I remember there's the there's the story of Rabbi Arya Levine when he was passing away. And he was he was elderly, and each of his students came into the room and they said, "We would like to pledge years of our lives to this man. We would give up part of our lives for this man." And I remember when Rabbi Sachs, before he became chief rabbi, wrote a series of pamphlets about what he would like to do for for British Jewry. And I read them as a yeshiva student, and I remember thinking, I would give up years of my life for this man because he has so much vision and so much to give in such a beautiful Jewish, traditional, observant, gentle way. And I don't think you could be more inspired than that. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Rabbi Dr. Rose, can you tell us about your connection on a personal level to Rabbi Sachs and what he meant to you? Sure. Uh, I have a, a slightly different story. Uh, I don't want to believe at this point I'm slightly younger than Joanna and, and Gideon, but I represent that next generation. And I think it's an important, it's a very average story. I, I Later on, I became very privileged to become, a, a, um, uh, have a little bit more access and become a little bit more uh, closer professionally. But my the beginning of my relationship with Rabbi Sachs was like the whole of my generation, the whole of my chevra will tell this same story. My, my earliest recollection actually isn't a real recollection. I didn't live so the the the, the ghetto, the, the Trillant Pot is like Hendon Green. I didn't live there. I lived in Edgware, the next neighborhood over. So he wasn't someone that I'd ever, I, I, I imagine growing up, I couldn't uh, pick him out from a, from a lineup. I, I wouldn't know who he was. The first I probably heard of him was when he was announced as being chief rabbi. I knew he was the rabbi in, in, in Marble Arch after Gold's Green. Um, but when I was 17, I'm a big uh, football fan. Arsenal is my team. And I went to Arsenal at 17. I used to go all the time. And uh, he'd become announced to be the next chief rabbi, and he was Arsenal's guest of honor together with the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was also elect. And they were very close friends, both Arsenal fans. Um, and that was my that's my first memory. I imagine I, I he was on my radar before that, but it was pretty cool for me as a 17 year old uh, obsessive football fan to know that the chief rabbi supported the same team. 
and I, but I think it's more than just cute and cool. It, 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 he was as as much of an academic and a philosopher and a, and a, and a religious uh, leader. He was also a very down to earth, regular person that was easy to relate to. Um, then I came to Israel to yeshiva, and that was the first time I remember ever reading a book voluntarily. Until then, I'd been forced to by school or parents. And then I started reading, and that was when I fell in love with him intellectually. Um, but I still hadn't connected to him uh, on a personal level. But I came back from two years of learning in yeshiva and was very involved in B'nai Akiva. Uh, and I've said this before, and I, 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 I've asked Joanna this before. It's He he, he became chief rabbi in 91. I, I came to Israel in 92 and returned in 94. And it seemed like he was always at the B'nai Akiva Bayat, like B'nai Akiva's headquarters. He was giving shirim and he was helping the madrachim and the roshim and and um, and he was in the student bet midrash and he was inviting madrachim to his house. It seemed like a chief rabbi shouldn't have enough time to do that, but he always made it a priority because he saw us as the next generation of leadership. So we all felt close to him and connected to him. I'd sat in in hundreds of shirim with just 20, 30 people and sometimes a hundred and sometimes a thousand. So we had a lot of access to him. Um, and that's why really we felt, I mean, we used to call him Ch- Chiefy Sachs. He was our chief rabbi, Chiefy Sachs. Um, and that was the relationship we had with him. Every Yom Atzimut, he would give the uh, the the drasha at the official Bnei Kiva Mizrahi uh, Yom Atzimut event, and that was always very important to him. So that that was who he was growing up. But then I made Aliyah in '99, and I kind of turned my back on. I didn't turn my back on on, on Anglo Jewry, but I, I left. I left behind one of the things I regret leaving behind, as well as Arsenal, my football team, and my family, is that access to Rabbi Sachs. I, I, you know, I, he would come to Israel once or twice a year. I'd get to chop a shear with him, but I didn't have that access anymore. Um, I was an educator. I became a professional educator. I taught in, in high school. Um, and then when I came here, I, I continued my career as an educator. And um, I can't remember the exact year, but it was like five or six years ago, uh, after f- completing his chief rabbinate and, 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 and entering into that that uh, long period of of, of, uh, of his career that uh, uh, Joanna mentioned, one of the things he, he made as his priority was education, was being a resource to Jewish educators. That was always a passion for his. And, you know, when you're chief rabbi, that comes with a lot of responsibility that he, I, I would imagine, um, um, didn't wasn't as passionate about as, as, as other elements of his leadership. Now he could focus on what he really uh, felt was was a priority, and, and education was one of those things, and being a resource. And uh, and he uh, he put out a message on social media: educators, tell me what I can do to help. And I was super excited to volunteer. I, I knew Joanna personally. Um, I was very close friends with her brother-in-law, uh, Dan, who Dan Sacker, who was a senior advisor there as well, was a, a chanich of mine. Uh, so I knew how to reach out, you know, uh, in a way that would uh, would connect me. And I said, I've got I've got ideas um, how how we can take Rabbi Sachs's uh, ideas that I'd fallen in love with on a pretty, you know, on, on an intellectual level. But we can take them and we can uh, adapt them to a younger audience, to families and to high school kids and even to elementary school um, age. Um, and that was the beginning of, of, of then my professional relationship with him and his team, um, which has continued ever since. Okay, well, thank you all. This is very interesting. It also provides a lot of ideas for further questions. So let's begin perhaps at the beginning. Joanna, can you tell me about Rabbi Sachs' initial decision many years ago to become a rabbi? Was that always something which he was on the path of doing? Because I always got the impression that it might have been a surprise perhaps to his family when he decided to go in that direction. There's there's no question. I think, the, um, and he, you know, he told the story several times, but he was traveling around America in 1968 um, as a young student. And he felt he was looking for answers. 
And he went around and he spoke, he managed to get access to Rav Soloveitchik, to Rabbi Norman Lamb, to eventually to the to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he was absolutely determined. And we we were actually thinking we would we've been looking sort of into the archives to sort of unpack some of that journey. Um, and how did he get access to the to Lubavitcher Rebbe? Because, because when he turned up there, his guys said just laughed at him. And said, yeah, come back next year or in a couple of years time. They didn't, you know, they they were just looking at him as if you're you're crazy. You know, do you know how many people are waiting to see the Lubavitcher Rebbe? And someone dropped the Lubavitcher Rebbe a line or picked up the phone and said, you've got to meet this young man. And we're not exactly sure who. We thought it was Lubavitch from here. I don't think it was. Um, it could have been Rabbi Lamb. We're not sure. And and the Lubavitcher Rebbe saw something in him and he said to him, and he was on a trajectory to be a moral philosopher. He was studying, um, he was doing his, his I think his his um, undergraduate studies at the time. Um, and he was in Cambridge. And the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, instead of waiting for Rabbi Sachs to ask him questions, started peppering him with questions. You know, how many students are on campus and 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 how many are engaged? And so he said, oh, there's probably about a thousand Jewish students on campus and maybe there's a hundred engaged. Well, what are you doing about it? And, and he said, you know, me, well, I'm just, you know, he, and he challenged him. And all, over the course of the next few years, he challenged him a few times to be a leader, you know, do something about it, engage with these people, um, train to be a rabbi. And it was not on his radar at all. Um, so he actually went back, he went, he finished his studies, he went to yeshiva. And it's incredible. And we've, we've all talked about this, you know, over the last few years, you know, how did he do that? Because he packed into a very short period of time an incredible depth of learning that is really unattainable to the majority of, of people, you know, even those working their way up the rabbinate at very high levels. He it, it was quite an incredible journey that that he took. Um, and his brother will say, you know, he basically locked himself away for seven years um, and, and was studying. You know, he had a young, a young family at the time, but he was... If he was going to do anything, he was going to do it properly. And he would put, put his heart and soul, it comes back to his preparation. That was, he was a driven person. He always had a list of things and things that he wanted to achieve and, and um, goals that he set himself. Um, and I think, the you know, the Lubavitcher Rebbe made him sit up and think, and what am I going to do about this? So it really wasn't on his radar at all. I think he was talking about being a moral philosopher, an economist, um, you know, a, a, an academic. And Joanna, from your words, it sounds like you're saying that he maintained the relationship with Lubavitcher Rebbe. I've heard about that initial trip across America where he met yeah. with Rav Soloveitchik and Lubavitcher Rebbe, but so he continued that relationship afterwards? Yes. Yeah. So he he continued that relationship with him. I think at, at least, I can't remember exactly which year the Lubavitcher Rebbe passed away, but... Um, I believe it was 94. That, 94 so he guys he he was the one that, that asked him about you know whether he should take the chief rabbinate role um and um and there's a sort of a famous story that he says you know he wrote to the Lubavitcher Rebbe and said should I take this position and the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was was um, a publisher an ed editor and he that there's a, a a way of transposing words so he didn't write anything he just did like a a, a sign and it means I should wow yeah. That leads to my next question, and I'll present it to everybody because I don't know who can best answer this, but 
Perhaps you can talk about some of his religious influences. You mentioned already Joanna, Rav Salvechik, Rav Lamb, and in particular Lubavitcher Rebbe. I know that Rabbi Sachs has talked about his connection with Rav Nachman Rabinovich of Malaya Dumim. Rabbi Rose, could you perhaps talk about what you know about Rabbi Sachs's religious and intellectual influences? Well, it, it's an impossible question to answer because of what Joanna mentioned, which is I find so so uh, um, inspiring. And in fact, uh, his daughter. At the first York site last year, we launched a, a communities and conversation program, which we're doing again this year. Uh, hundreds of communities and schools around the world are learning Le'ilui uh, Nishmato. And, and Gila, his daughter, um, uh, gave the Devato to launch it, where she mentions um, um, how much he learned from all people. Um, and in fact, I'm just remembering now, she also gave the same speech when he received the Templeton Prize. She gave a surprise speech and she quoted the Mishnah in Perkeavot, Ezeru Chacham. Uh, and that was really Rabbi Sachs down to a T. So it's impossible to. I, I would have mentioned all the one, all the all the thinkers that you already mentioned. We could throw in Heschel to that to that group, and 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 so many others. But it's really across the spectrum of religious thinkers for sure. Um, and in terms of secular uh, inspiration, I mean, I think his brilliance. We talk about this. Uh, uh, I work at Corin, and we talk about it often about what it was, what his the biggest chidush that he brought to the table of, of, of Jewish uh, uh, learning. And on some level, it's bringing uh, social sciences to, 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 to use as a prism to understand Torah and to inform our understanding of Torah. And that was something, I mean, I have two two bookshelves at home, two Rabbi Sachs bookshelves at home. I have, I have the very large bookshelf of all of his books. And then I have another bookshelf um, in the other room of books that he quotes, secular books that he quotes that I had to go out and 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 by the minute he quoted it, I needed to read and understand what what he uh, he quoted. And and you know, um, we all go through stages of grief and and of missing him, of feeling bereft. And and I'm I don't know who who's going to tell me what to read next. Rabbi Sylvester, do you want to add anything in terms of his influences? Um, yeah, maybe just a, a word more about the Lubavitch Rebbe and a word about Rebbe Nachum uh, Rabinovich. Um, on the Lubavitch Rebbe, Rabbi Sachs. Uh, I think modeled himself enormously on the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Um, and Rabbi Sachs told one story about, or, or, or one thought about the Rebbe, uh, which I think was immensely powerful. Um, he said that he thought that the reason why the Rebbe encouraged um, Chabadnikim to go out and seek out every Jew um, and look after them and embrace them and bring them back to the community was because the Rebbe had witnessed that Hitler and his Nazis had hunted down every single Jew in the world and gone to no, there was no, there were no limits to the effort that they would invest to track down every single Jew in order to murder them. And Rabbi Sachs felt that the Rebbe in response wanted that there should be no limit to how far we went to find every Jew and care for them, look after them, love them, embrace them and keep them close. Um, and I think that that was so much at the heart of what Rabbi Sachs did, as, as Joanna mentioned earlier, his project of of, um, of Jewish continuity, which was sheer genius, um, an idea of being able to embrace every single Jew in Britain um, and give them the opportunities for lifelong learning um, in whatever way would speak to them. Um, and it was stunning. Um, and I think he also embraced the Lubavitcher Rebbe had been one of the very first Jew rabbis in the world to use technology um, and Rabbi Sachs did it with genius. Um, I remember the first CDs that he had that he released, um, which came in newspaper in in the in it was 
It was included in the Jewish newspaper that went to almost every Jewish home in Britain, where Rabbi Sachs told the story of the state of Israel together with songs, contemporary songs. Um, and then he went on to use other technologies um, of the internet. And I think in those ways, he really modeled himself on the on the Rebbe. Um, in terms of Rabbi Rabinowitz, clearly the, the recordings of Rabbi Rabinowitz speaking of his deep admiration and respect for Rabbi Sachs. Um, Rabbi Sachs writes beautifully about the atmosphere in Jews College when Rabbi uh, Rabinowitz was the principal. Um, and he describes it as being as open as Oxford Street on a weekend afternoon, which I think is very, very lovely. And he clearly thrived um, having very brilliant mentors. Um, and I just like to echo what Daniel says about how Rabbi Sachs just gave us the reading list. Um, in fact, every conversation with Rabbi Sachs, you were presented with a reading list and you had to kind of pretend that you were familiar with all <laughs> the authors that he mentioned. And you didn't want to make too much of an idiot of yourself, um, nor did you wish to be uh, challenged if he asked you what you knew about them. Um, but yes, he was a constant source of intellectual inspiration. I want to add a story that's not mine to tell just on that point, but it's such a great story. It's Dan Sacker, actually. Um, again, his senior advisor. So he once bought Dan a book that he wanted Dan to read, and uh, that was very exciting. And um, the next morning, Rabbi Sachs said to Nuh, what did you think? And Dan said it was still in the car. Yeah? But for <laughs> Rabbi Sachs, he would have spent the night reading it, and, and he would have been able to you know, come back. And that was, that was the kind of person we were desperately trying to keep up with. Fantastic. A book a day. A book a day. Yeah. Wow. Rabbi Sylvester, I want to go back to you. I want to cite something you mentioned maybe about 10 or 15 minutes ago when he first became chief rabbi or during that year when he was preparing to be chief rabbi, you said he was key to make change. And I'm kind of curious what you mean by that. What, what did he have in mind in terms of what sorts of changes did he think were necessary and what did he want to achieve in that realm? Um, so I think as, as, as Joanna um, kind of hinted at before, Rabbi Sachs, in his massively broad reading, read a ton of demography, uh, demographic material and sociological material. Um, and he was very aware of the, the kind of assimilation uh, that was going on in American jury and the assimilation that was going on in British jury. And, and what he did, which I think was so beautiful and, and, and mattered so much to him was, it wasn't enough that certain shuls would be full, that you could fill a room. What mattered to him was that every Jew should be engaged in the Jewish community and every Jew should be engaged in learning and growing uh, and that the community should fill its potential. Um, and I think that was, if, if, if you read the books that he wrote on the, on the subject, in particular Community of Faith, but also the pamphlets that he wrote um, in order to create Jewish continuity, uh, that was, I think, the thing that was driving him really hard. He was just constantly thinking about how can we engage every Jew um, and seeing that British jury was not yet as engaged as it should be, that the synagogues weren't as exciting as they should be, that the educational programs weren't as dynamic as they should be, was something that um, that really mattered to him. And in fact, in, in truth, it mattered him from the very beginnings of his rabbinate. It's interesting that today he's kind of viewed as a great figure of the establishment. But he was he was an angry rebel in his early days as a rabbi. Um, people, the, the, the head of the Orthodox synagogues walked out of one of his sermons uh, where he where he spoke and, and, and wrote an article about how he felt that the community was did not have vision. 
uh, was not including its rabbis in creating a vision, and it needed to get up, wake up, and, and work harder to achieve that. Um, and it mattered passionately to him. And it continued to matter passionately to him throughout his rabbinate. And one of the things that was really lovely was this man who was a superstar and a celebrity and spending nights in royal palaces was also schlepping all over the country to meet every little community. Um, and and even more remarkably, when students invited him uh, to speak to their Jewish societies, he would go and stay in some student digs um, in the middle of nowhere, not in the least bit comfortable or appropriate for him, but he would just do it because that's what mattered to him. And he would be up there with the students and with the, uh, with the youth movements, dancing on the chairs, um, inspiring them. There's a famous story of how he went off to Wales um, and the Welsh constabulary. It's probably Daniel's story more than mine to tell, but um, he was a guest of the youth movement, B'nai Kiva, and the police were very excited that they would be guarding the chief rabbi. Um, and they were all standing outside uh, patrolling when suddenly they heard the most incredible ruckus coming from inside the building and they were quite nervous because they weren't expecting anything to actually happen and they all ran in with their truncheons flying uh, to find the, the chief rabbi dancing on the chairs with the, with the kids of the youth movement. Um, and apparently the head of the Welsh police asked to come back out of retirement the following year just to be there for, for Rabbi Sachs. But I think that gives you an indication of the sort of person that he was, the remarkable person that he was, from royal palaces to dancing with kids and students. Then, Joanna, I want to take that further, and perhaps this question is unanswerable. Rabbi Sylvester just talked about his goals in making change, but at this time of year, we read in the Torah about how even Avraham Avinu wanted to have God save Stoma and Amorah, and he failed. The greatness of the leader does not necessarily indicate success or failure, although sometimes, of course, we hope they do have success. Speaking of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he had tremendous success in what he was doing. Would you say that Rabbi Sachs succeeded in his goal in making the changes that he intended, or is that a goal which eluded him on some level for much of his life and much of his tenure as chief rabbi? I think um, one of, um, and I can't remember if it was the, the, the second, our second motif uh, in the first 10 years in office, probably it was the second 10 years in office, was lo alecha. So we, we cannot not do something because we're not going to finish it. We have to start. And he was the most incredible catalyst for change. And he inspired others to go and do and I think, you know, that was the idea of continuity. You know, yes, he he had to galvanize the community um, and sort of shake them up, if you like. But his his constant um, goals were not to create institutions and and and, um, and and big organizations. But what he wanted was people to really think about change. Um, so one of the things and he would never, ever have taken credit for it, but he he made the Jewish community in Britain, Anglo Jewry, proud of, of becoming learners and 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 wanting to learn, have better Jewish education. And under his watch, we went from 25% of Jewish kids in Jewish day schools to almost 70%. And he'll say it was nothing to do with me, but he created an atmosphere where that was possible to happen. Um, so, you know, I think he had very lofty goals and, and long-term ideas but he was engaging with partners to make that happen and and creating that that atmosphere of 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 being able to to affect change 
Rabbi Rose, let me move it over to you as that next generation who was inspired by his example. Do you think that his example, so to speak, and that inspiration that he provided was something which did move a lot of people that you saw personally? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I want to mention his weekly Dvartar on the Pasha is called Covenant Conversation. Um, and although, and it, the the very last one, well, the one that was sent out the week of the of his shiva is an essay called uh, "Beginning the Journey" on Pasha Chayesar, "Beginning the Journey," and he ends it with it. And it was, you know, it felt very much like he was communicating to us from beyond the grave. But this was really, you know, the the, the basis of, of everything that he did. It, it just ends with this with this sentence. I'd like to read out: Leaders see the destination, begin the journey, and leave behind those who will continue it. That is enough to endow a life with immortality. It was just such a powerful message to, to leave us with. Um, the the Dato was on Avraham, who at the end of Avraham's life, he hadn't really achieved any of the, you know, the, any of the elements of the Brit with Hashem. He didn't really have, he didn't have the continuity. He didn't have Eretz but he'd done enough. And uh, so that, and you know, and we're going to talk, I'm sure, about legacy, uh, Rabbi Sachs' legacy and, 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 and the organization called the Rabbi Sachs' legacy. That's what we are all desperately trying to do is to, to continue the work. I, I had a deep sense that his books and I used to wait. I mean, my, the rhythm of my life was waiting for the annual book that would drop that I would then vociferously consume um, and then run out to find people to talk to about it. And, and we don't have that anymore. The books were were clarion calls for action, and now we have to, now we're at that stage where we have to take action. Uh, he called for, you know, uh, 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 building a society based on Torah values in the world, and and now we, there are no more books coming to tell us, and we haven't we have enough. We don't have enough, but we have enough that we have to go now and do it. So that's I really feel that's that's what he left us with is a, is a big task. Rabbi Sylvester, I want to move on to a follow-up question. Instead of talking about how he wanted to make change, I'd like to ask you a little bit about ways that perhaps Rabbi Sachs himself changed over the course of his lifetime, perhaps over the course of his rabbinate. Do you have any information about that? So first of all, I, I think, I mean, there's so much to say. Um, as, as, as people have pointed out before, Rabbi Sachs was constantly developing and constantly learning. Um, and... He, he trained himself to become better and better at what he did. So I think that's one change. I think his first, his early sermons uh, were known to be quite difficult to follow um, and challenging. And Rabbi Sachs developed himself as a brilliant orator, um, which I think captured the hearts and minds uh, of so many people. I well, think- that's interesting. It wasn't always like that, you're saying. Oh, no. No, we don't think he was. He was. He was known as. And in fact, one person that I interviewed about him said um, that he he went to hear Rabbi Sachs after many years, a contemporary of his, and he said, "Rabbi Sachs, I've never heard you speak like this, and I've never heard you tell jokes before. You never used to tell jokes. You were deadly dry and serious. How in the world did you learn to become such a brilliant speaker?" And Rabbi Sachs said, I read books. <laughs> um, he read books about how to tell jokes and he mastered it um, as he mastered everything else. Um, I just want to, I want to, sorry to j- jump in. If if you um go onto the B- BBC podcast web- website, you'll find uh, there's a very famous show we all grew up with called Desert Island Discs, where they do all sorts of people from all sorts of areas of society, celebrities and uh, to choose seven songs that they would take on a desert island. So Rabbi Sachs d- did this in nine, in 1990, just before he became chief rabbi. If you just listen to it now, um, it's it's he's almost unrecognizable. I mean, he he should forgive me for saying, but stuffy and very serious, and you know, 
And then, the, and then you listen to more recent speeches where he was had such a beautiful self-deprecating uh, sense of humor, which was always on point and used for 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 good reason, not just to make people laugh, but but there, uh, the the contrast. So for me, he that's uh, growth mindset um, uh, uh, epitomized. You know that he realized what his weaknesses were and he worked hard to to to, to grow at them. I have to say, I'm almost relieved to hear this only because I am not British. My connection to Rabbi Sachs is far, far less acute than any of yours. I did spend most of 1995 in England. I bought a book called Crisis, Covenant. Crisis and Covenant, yes, which I have behind me. The book was published in 1992. And I know this is going to sound impossibly shallow. The picture on the back had a grinning Rabbi Sachs, but he looked a little bit stern, if anything, like an academic rather than like a warm, welcoming person. And not only from that picture, but that sort of represented the way I thought Rabbi Sachs was in those days, an academic rather than somebody who was a man of the people, if you will. I assume later on, as I heard how welcoming and warm he was, that I was simply wrong. But it sounds like you're saying that he did change over time in that way. He was an academic through and through. Um, and he he realized, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's probably similar to what um, to what Rabbi Sylvester said, you know, someone would sit in a, in a sermon and, and, and in shul and, and afterwards he said, you know, was that any good? He said it was wonderful, but I didn't understand a word. <laughs> um, and and so he really he took people on to help him. He, he read books on how to, to speak better, how to communicate better. But he also invested huge amounts of time bringing the best of the best to come and experience you know train him how to read because he said you know what is the point if I've got something wonderful to share if nobody's with me um and he talked about the early days he felt you know he had he was the first person in Britain to really do a tikkun lel shavuot and the community was like what on earth what what are you talking about learning in midnight why and he said that he didn't successfully communicate to them why why we were going to do this and why. And he he said, I was walking at 70 miles an hour in the community with 30 miles an hour. And I had to learn how to moderate my steps to bring them along with me. And it mm. was a journey that he went on and very self-aware. If you read Crisis and Covenant, the, the writing style there is, is much harder than the recent books where he was writing, where he realized to write to a much broader audience. He changed his writing style or at least uh, modulated it. So he would write different types of books for different markets and different audiences. Rabbi Sylvester, you were talking and we all interrupted you. So <laughs> let me give the floor back they to you. Great. The interruptions were great. They were fantastic. Um, so, so perhaps, I mean, uh, another illustration of some things we spoke about earlier, because you asked me about in what way he he wanted to drive change. He was also the first rabbi not to wear canonicals. Um, and it was revolutionary. All the other rabbis wore those caps and gowns and, and, and uh, well, I won't say, but, but Rabbi Sachs took them off um, to, much to everyone's shock. Um, and he began his career as a local community rabbi. And I think one of the, the big, I think intellectually, actually, if you look at the early books that he wrote and the early articles that he wrote and speeches he gave, the issues that were on his mind from the very beginning carried on uh, throughout the books. And actually, you see ideas being developed over time. Um, it's not that the, the, there was one idea in one gener in one stage and one in another, they they were constantly percolating and 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 getting deeper, um, and broader and more exciting, um, and I think that's also true about his career and the stages on which he played. In other words, if his initial stages were local communities, um, it then became 
a national stage in Britain um, where he was trying to build the community um, and he was trying to build it probably against its will. He had such brilliant ideas for British jury um, and he had to deal with lots of bureaucrats, lots of very opinionated uh, community leaders. Um, and he kind of he did his best to, to really change the community. Um, he was also a master of creating new institutions and new platforms from which to work and to make that change. So when he saw that, that one platform was being obstructed, um, he just went and created another. Um, and then towards the end of his life, he became this, this world religious leader, um, or, or maybe to begin with a British national leader, not just for the Jewish, for the British uh, Jewish community, but for the, for the wider British community. Um, and if you listen to the tributes that were paid to him when he retired, and, and I find this absolutely mind boggling, um, he was praised by four archbishops, the two Catholics and two Protestants, the present and the, and the previous, four prime ministers, uh, the, the editor of the Times, which is Britain's most serious newspaper, the anchor of the, of the, of the major radio program in the morning, um, and I often say that when the Rumbum says um, that in the end of days, the nations of the world will come and they'll point at the Jewish people and say, how great and intelligent is this people? Those interviews are a taste of that, where you see royalty and journalists and religious leaders and prime ministers saying this man is a national treasure. Yeah, not to mention the future king, the future king, yeah, exactly. the future king, the current king now. And then he became a world's religious leader um, and people are reading his books everywhere. Um, and I'm so thrilled about that because he has so much to say and it's just exciting to see that message spreading wider and wider. We uh, spent a period living in Atlanta, Georgia for two years on Shichut. And one of my aims was I really wanted to bring, I wanted to expose the community there to Rabbi Sachs. I assumed in America, which is for us a backwater, like, you know, what do they know? Um, they, they'd never have heard of Rabbi Sachs. Anyway, he, within three months, he was a guest of, of honor there and he was a rock star. I mean, he'd, he'd conquered America a long time before I was aware of how global his name was. You know, sort of to build on what Rabbi Sylvester said, you know, his his approach was a Judaism engaged with the world. So that those stages gave him the ability to be a proud Jew and, and espouse Jewish values in the, in the broadest possible stage. Um, and be an example, but also to show the Jewish community that we, there's lots to learn from, from Western society as well. So it was the best of the West and the best of Judaism. And that's what he really stood for. He he didn't see a divide between the two. This was who he was and who he stood for. And he, you know, he'd get upset if he heard, you know, that there was someone who would take their kippah off when they got into their to their office, because you should be proud of who you are. And I think he gave he gave Britain pride in being Jewish you know that he would speak on thought for the day on BBC radio and the the flagship program in the morning and people would get into their offices and said oh I heard your chief rabbi on the radio this morning you must be so proud to have such a person representing you um, and I think you know I, I I said to him a couple of times and he absolutely hated it because he considered himself an Evet Hashem and a, he was very very humble and I said to him you know you are a Kiddush Hashem you're a walking example of what it is to be and he he didn't like that he said no I'm just this is what I have to do and I hope people understand what I'm trying to achieve he didn't see himself in that 
in that role at all. But he was an example of what it was to be a good Jew. It was who he was um, and everything that he did and everything that he said publicly and the way he behaved w was from that, from that point. I want to continue with what you're saying right now. And Rabbi Sylvester, by the way, I want to mention that you talked about those fundamental ideas that carried him throughout his career. We'll talk about that in our follow-up episode. We simply don't have time for everything now, but we will deal with that because that obviously is a very important point. I don't want to leave that aside without acknowledging that. But one of the things that I've always found very powerful about Rabbi Sachs's writings, in addition to the foundational and incredible ideas, is that he sometimes writes very personally about his own struggles, about things that were difficult for him. I've read him write about the time that he, as he described it, fell into a depression after his father died. And that kind of personal, not only awareness, but the revealing of what's going on in somebody's soul is difficult. And I find it fascinating that Rabbi Sachs was willing to do that because, Joanna, you just mentioned his humility. Sometimes someone can say, I've reached the pinnacle. I'm the chief rabbi. I'm the most famous rabbi in the world. At this point, I can't allow anyone to see that I have any weaknesses. And it sounds like you're saying, and from what I've read, that certainly is not what Rabbi Sachs was about. Not That's not how he all. saw himself. Not at all. And if, I think if he felt, he felt that if people could learn from how he pulled himself through that depression, um, it gives hope to others. Um, and he, he, ne he, you know, continuing to what we said earlier, you know, he was a lifelong learner. He would never, ever feel that he'd ever reached the pinnacle of anything. Um, he was always, there was always more that he could be learning and, and growing intellectually. It was, he was never satisfied with where, where he was. I'd like to recommend to you and to your listeners um, a very short podcast by Ephraim Goldberg's Behind the Bimmer podcast. What's most beautiful about this is it was off the cuff. Uh, Joanna says he was always prepared. Um, uh, it feels like he, I mean, he, I think Rabbi Goldberg cornered him. He was a guest of honor in, in, in Boca. And Rabbi, Rabbi Goldberg said, Would you mind? I, I'm thinking of launching a podcast. Will you just sit with me? And it was literally 20 minutes. And it was just pure from his neshama. And, and some of the things that were discussed there are beautiful. And one of the questions Rabbi Goldberg said was, From the outside, it seems like you've only ever been successful. You've achieved such wonderful things. And have you ever experienced failure in your life? And at this moment, you can hear him bellow with laughter at the thought that he'd never failed and then he starts listing all of his failures like he said he he, he didn't get almost every job he ever applied for and and he went on and and you know that con the concept of of, of growing from failure is something that he embodied it's it, it's just hard for us to imagine but you know he anyway in the, in the podcast he speaks about it beautifully Okay, thank you for that recommendation. Rabbi Rose, I want to continue with you now. And Rabbi Sachs was someone who, as you said, did go to Israel for a year to learn. He came to Israel very, very often, but he was a British rabbi. I wanted to ask about his attitude towards the state of Israel in particular. Is there anything you could tell us? How did he see the state of Israel in terms of the future of Jewry, perhaps in conjunction with that, the place of diaspora Jewry with relation to Israel? How did he see that dynamic? Well, so first and foremost, I mentioned previously, I, I'd like to mention again, B'nai Kiva was an important part of his upbringing, his childhood. So he was always very much Israel focused. As far as I can uh, can describe, to can attest to, he would always have described himself as a Zionist, passionate Zionist. In fact, the religious awakening that uh, we've mentioned in, in that trip across America to meet the, the leaders of, of, of modern orthodoxy was uh, triggered, inspired by the Six Day War and the pride that that gave him and, and his generation. So he was always tremendously focused on Israel. And I, I always, you know, I, I don't think this is something um, to be taken for granted. He, he lived and, and rubbed shoulders 
among the, the the leadership of British society. He sat in the House of Lords. He was, you know, a, a guest and, and, and a close confidant of, of, of the future king who is now the king. Um, it would be easy or imaginable that he would be someone that would like uh, um, de-emphasize his connection to Israel because it's just a bit awkward. Br British people generally try to avoid awkwardness. Whenever I was in, when I was in America, people would say, where are you from? If I wear my kippah, I would, I would find myself saying England instead of Israel because I just wanted to avoid the complicated conversation. Um, until one time I met a very passionate Zionist Christian who said, oh, I'm so disappointed. I, I thought you might be from Israel. And from then on, I'm like, okay, it's time to just, <laughs> time to just face up to it. He never, ever, he would always, he made speeches um, in support of Israel in the House of Lords and wrote articles in the newspaper. He, he was absolutely committed to, obviously, Israel's right to exist and Israel's right to exist in the complicated situation it found itself, including the Israel-Arab uh, conflict. He was prepared to be critical of the Israeli government, but but was absolutely first and foremost loyal to the concept of the state of Israel, the government of the state of Israel as the legitimate leadership of that of that state. Um, and also Israel was a very fundamental part of his philosophy and his thought. I can't sum up his thought in just a sentence or two, and, and you're going to have another podcast really exploring his thought. But on some level, he, he spoke very much, uh, very often and very uh, uh, deeply and passionately about um, Israel's national mission. Um, to be aligned to, the, uh, to the, the nations, to 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 heal a fractured world, to be involved in this. But the way he saw that, it's it's very important that that's taken to the end of the argument that he took. It is is the best way for us as a people to do this, to be this this light to the world, and to and to help in the process of of fixing the world, tikkun olam um, um, of healing the world, is not the best way. Is not by being an individual in 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 London or in New York. But it's by being a, a nation state in the land of Israel, creating a society that's based on those values as a model for what society can be. So Israel was very, very central and fundamental to, to, to him on every level of his being, including his philosophy. Rabbi Sachs, I think his connection to Israel was also very much underlined by the fact that he was the person who decided that the Smicha program at Jewish College should, should, should no longer operate. And Smicha students should go to Israel because he realized that Israel was close and inspiring and could give people studying um, more than more than they would get in those days in England. So he was willing to to kind of reduce perhaps his power base in, in London in order to get the best possible result. Uh, when he came, when I was a Smicha student, or and when I was a Smicha student in the Gush, I remember him coming to speak to us to, to the yeshiva and speaking about how he saw it as his mission to bring all the Jews of Britain to Israel. And of course, those discs that I mentioned before, the Home of Hope, were a celebration of, I think, 60 years of the State of Israel, where he told the story of the State of Israel with Israeli music and, and um, contemporary Israeli composers. Um, so I think he really, even though he was even more British than I am, perhaps, than, <laughs> but he had a deep and strong and loving connection to the state of Israel. And I think there's one more thing, which I don't think anyone's ever spoken about, and I could be wrong. But my impression is that just after he left office, there was a crisis in British Jewry about its ability to speak about Israel and defend Israel at a time when Israel was under constant attack. And if you go back to the newspapers, you'll see there are all sorts of grassroots organizations popping up because everyone was dissatisfied with the uh, with the community's um, response to criticism of Israel. 
And I very much suspect that that's because when Rabbi Sachs left public life, which he did very generously in order to enable his successors to, to have their voices, there was a major gap in the market because he had been Britain's most fantastic defender and spokesman for the state of Israel. I'd like to add to that as well. Sorry. Please. <laughs> um, just also, and uh, again, maybe this w we should deal with this more when we talk about his legacy, but it was always very important for Rabbi Sachs to also have an impact in Israel, but also very challenging. He wasn't, uh, I mean, he's a Hebrew was excellent, but it was, uh, wasn't was natural for him. You know, you imagine as an orator, you know, it was very hard for him to speak in Hebrew, knowing how much more impactful he could be in English. Um, and also culturally, he, uh, I actually gave the drasha in my Israeli shawl just last Shabbat, and I, this was the gag that I had prepared. You know, he knew well that uh, Israelis always love to hear advice from Jews in Chutzaretz. Like, this is not an easy thing for Israelis is to get advice. So he was very sensitive to, to not, I wanted, I was desperate for him to write the book on Israeli society that we were desperate to read. Um, and I've heard from his brother that that was perhaps in his plans and that was something, but he wrote two chapters in a book called Future Tense on Israel and they're wonderful and uh, and and gritty and, and, and edgy. Like they're not, you know, it's not just fuzzy and warm. It's uh, he, he, he makes some, he, he writes some painful truths in there. I wanted it to be an entire book, but it's very, it was very important for him. And it's now very important for us to continue spreading um, his ideas in Israeli society. And, and, and there are many initiatives that we're involved in that, that are doing just that. I remember a video, I'm sure you've seen it, very, very soon before he died in the midst of COVID. It was right around Rosh Hashanah. I think I might have seen the video actually after he passed away. But in that video, he was talking about maintaining hope in dark times and difficult times. And at a certain point, he mentioned, it just it made an impression on me, even though it's a very, very minor point. It wasn't the point of it. He talked about he and his wife, there, I think it was their 50th wedding anniversary, how they opened a bottle of Israeli champagne. And that phrase, Israeli champagne, I don't know if he meant that as an important point. But to me, that small detail, the taking pride in Israel to the degree that it's our wedding anniversary, we're going to open a bottle of Israeli champagne, it just meant something to me that he had this sense of pride in the state of Israel. Joanna, perhaps I can ask you about the next step, which is speaking about Israel, but also about the difficulty of defending Israel and how that can often slide into anti-Semitism. Did Rabbi Sachs have any particular way of dealing with, of confronting anti-Semitism in Great Britain and throughout the world? So he he was probably one of the first to bring it to the fore um, as early as, I think, 2001, um, his daughter had gone to a, a CND conference, um, you know, that, that soon sort of went into anti-Semitic tropes. Um, and she came back and she said, and she was in university at the time, she said, Dad, they hate us. And um, and he raised it with ministers, um, both in the UK. He spoke at the European Parliament um, about the scourge of anti-Semitism and, and that it was just, you know, touching the surface of, you know, what, what would affect the Jews would eventually affect humanity. We were just the, we were just the canaries in the mine, really. Um, and that people really had to take notice of what was going on. And, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if you, if you recall, but um, he spoke out very, very strongly um, when Corbyn, you know, one made one comment after another. And then, and I think the, um, he said that uh, British Jews don't get um, irony. And it was like a tipping point for Rabbi Sachs. And he spoke out very, very strongly about that kind of language. Um, so he was a staunch defender of the Jewish community and was 
you know, aiming to stamp out anti-Semitism at the highest levels. And he took he I think one of his one of his probably best speeches was given in the European Parliament. I can't remember exactly what year, um, middle 2012, 13, something like that. And he went to Europe and it's in, an incredible speech. And he said that he probably it was his hardest hitting speech on that topic that he'd ever made. But he said, if I don't speak like this, people are not going to hear me. So it was a real, real concern to him. And he he felt that he had to speak up. It was his duty. Um, and actually, we've um, one of the ways that he engaged technologically was in whiteboard animation videos, because the books are great if you're prepared to sit down and read a 300 page book. But he realized that to touch young people, they've got short attention spans. And how can you get something meaningful over in a very short period of time? And we took him the idea of doing whiteboard animation videos, which um, he wasn't so sure about at the beginning, but realized that it was a really lovely way of touching people and very informative. And he's done, he did a beautiful one on anti-Semitism, really explaining, unpacking the issues and how we, you know, we were seen, you know, whatever stages of life we were over the over the ages, we were always viewed as different. And that's why he wrote The Dignity of Difference. You know, you've got to see the face of God in the other because actually you are the other. Right. Joanna, when you discuss the whiteboard animations, I remember them seeing them on Facebook. Very entertaining and very well done. That leads to perhaps the unanswerable question. And I'll just throw it out to whoever feels like answering this particular issue. What was that thing that made him so influential that made people want to hear his voice? I mean, on the one hand, you have animations and well-done productions of that sort. You have his writing. You have his oratory. You have the ideas. Is there any particular thread that ties them all together that makes Rabbi Sachs the person that he was, that he was able to have such a platform and such a loud voice and such a powerful voice that he was able to impact people in ways that other people have not been able to impact people? He was able to express ideas in a way that made them accessible. So big ideas that people really struggled with. And he was able to articulate them in a way that made that really gave them access to understanding those. And I think that's that was evident in his later writing. His his early writings was was, you know, as we discussed, much more um academic. But he was he he told us each book that he wrote was there to to answer a question that he had that he would pose to himself. Um, and, and I think, you know, he really, he really worked very hard on being accessible and making his ideas accessible. You know, his book on morality has been quoted all around the world because he makes those very difficult concepts and ideas understandable. He unpacks very complex ideas and, and makes them accessible. He's the complete package, right? As an orator, his writing is magnificent. It's like reading poetry to me. And, and as a person, we've spoken about who he was as a person. I mean, there's much more to say about that as well, but he his values. and, and But for me, and maybe I'm just speaking as an educator, um, or on behalf of any anyone curious to understand what Judaism is, for me, I, I talk about him, He like no one else I've ever encountered understood the big picture, big picture Judaism. Because look, I, I'm a product of, um, you know, 12, 13, 14 years of Jewish day school education. I need therapy to deal with that. I spent a lot of time learning a lot of texts, some, sometimes from teachers who were, you know, master educators, often not. Um, but I don't know that anyone sat me down and talked about the big picture. Like, what's it all about? And he just, and I think a lot of different types of educational systems and Hashkafot don't don't focus on that and miss that. And he was someone that, just, like, why be Jewish is a question that he asked and asked and asked and, and tried to help us with, with an answer. 
I don't know. I don't remember encountering a teacher or a rabbi that's ever asked that question before. And that for me as an educator gave me so many tools and such vision and inspiration to be, I think, a better educator and, and a better Jew. I think he also made things relevant. So he took big concepts and made them relevant to where we are now. And even when you read things, you know, that he wrote five years ago, it's relevant and it's it's appropriate for now to help us understand those big questions. But I think, as Daniel said, it was it was who he was. Um, he really strove to, to be able to communicate to people where they were. I, I would just add one thing is that, that I think it's big picture plus authenticity. In other words, there are lots of people who can speak big picture, but actually you, when you dig a little deeper, there's very little content to it. And there are Talmud Echachamim who are fantastic at the detail, but can't give you the big picture. And what Rabbi Sachs, with genius, was able to do was to sew the two together. Um, and he very often sewed the two together with stories. He was a master storyteller. And I have to tell you that when I, I was one of his rabbis, I, I worked as a community rabbi when he was chief rabbi, and he was my boss. And I remember when I first became a rabbi, he said to me, Gideon, you will tell the community stories. And I was utterly mortified. I was convinced he was saying to me, Gideon, there are clever rabbis who teach their communities philosophy, and there are Talmudei HaChamim who are teach, giving brilliant gemarishes, and you'll be a storyteller, <laughs> never. Uh, but later I discovered that he gave similar advice to the prime minister, um, and that he himself embodied it, being a wonderful uh, storyteller. But, but I walked around for weeks so upset. <laughs> Let's talk about how he perhaps changed the conversation, which gets into his long-term legacy. In what ways is British Jewry, world Jewry, different now than it was before he came on the scene? And how is his legacy going to continue? Certainly British Jewry stands prouder than, I think, probably the 67 was probably a turnaround time. Um, people really stood up for for what they believed in. and 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 he allowed a community to be to be operating in this in the UK that were proud Jews. Um, and we've, you know, I think we punch above our weight here in, in particularly in Britain. Um, we have a lot more members of the House of Lords than we represent that, that represent our numbers, um, educators, economists. We we are a community of of doers and thinkers. And he encouraged, he really encouraged that in his time. And he, I think, you know, what I said before, you know, he was he he allowed that atmosphere to, to be pervasive so that people would be the best that they could in that period. He didn't necessarily, he wouldn't necessarily say that he affected the change, but he enabled change to happen. And as far as sort of his legacy, I think that um, what he's left us with um, is this enormous canon of work, um, books on on every subject um, imaginable, a, an incredible chumash that will please God, the translation of which is out and, and um, the commentary which is in hand at the moment. Um, the Siddur, the Siddurim, the Machzorim, um, which, you know, were, were passionate to him. If you, you know, you, you go and read the introduction to the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur Machzorim, it sets you up for the Yom Nuraim in, in a way that I don't think anyone else could uh, could have done and the introduction to the Siddha about prayer and understanding prayer I think you know what he's given us is an incredible blueprint for living a good uh, a good life 
our responsibility now we we see is sort of in three areas the publications which are his books um the incredible website that we have where we have you know we live in a time when he really used technology to the very best of its ability uh, so we have audio and visual um work podcasts um, an incredible material covenant and conversation which is still going out weekly um, a new family edition thanks to Daniel's incredible work and continuing those conversations with with the material that we have so just to, to highlight the family edition we're inviting guest contributors each week to write a story about Rabbi Sachs relating to that week's parasha which Daniel has has um, has summarized and put into language that that youngsters can understand we are encouraging family conversations around that week's Pasha. So that's something we are, we're actively continuing his work and continuing the conversations that he began. Translating him into as many languages, particularly Hebrew. Hebrew and Israel is a major, major focus um, of the legacy work that we're doing. Um, the other pillar is education, building him into the education system in Israel and Chutz Laaretz, particularly North America, where we really feel that his values um, add a huge amount to the conversation in schools. Um, so training teachers, building curriculum is very, very important to, to us. Um, and not only formal education, informal as well. You know, the youth groups, camp systems, Mechinot in Israel already, 16 Mechinot already beginning to learn about Rabbi Sachs. He's been built into the Bagrut system. So there is lots and lots of work to be done on the education front. And then leadership. What does Jewish leadership look like? Rabbi Sachs would not have said, you know, that he espoused, you know, leadership principles, but he did. And and the way that he mentored others and what we say is, you know, good leaders create followers, great leaders create leaders. And that's what he did. Um, and Rabbi Sylvester and Daniel are excellent examples of, of people that stepped up hearing Rabbi Sachs's call. To make it clear, when you say we, you're referring to Rabbi Sachs Legacy. Rabbi Sachs Legacy Organization. Yes. Yeah. Okay. How did that organization begin? What was the genesis of it? So we we created a trust when Rabbi Sachs stepped down in, as chief rabbi called the Covenant and Conversation Trust, which I think would make a lot of sense to your listeners. And it was a, it was a brand that he'd built up um, before he stepped down as chief rabbi. And people, thank God, uh, around the world are still learning Covenant Conversation with him and feel that they have that connection weekly with him. But when he passed away, we realized that actually we needed to rename the, the organization. And, and we in early January 2021, we renamed ourselves the Rabbi Sachs Legacy Trust in the UK. We have a matching um, 501c3 in the States, which is still called Covenant Conversation. That's a work in progress. We have family members now on our trust in the UK. Um, so we're really working with them to envision what that legacy looks like. Um, and ensuring that it uh, stands the test of time, because I think Rabbi Sachs' teachings are going to be relevant for many, many, many years to come. I don't think there's anyone out there that has the same relevance that Rabbi Sachs has. I'd like to conclude by looking at the long-term impact and legacy of Rabbi Sachs. If we look 10, 20, 30, 40 years into the future, first of all, how do you think people will look back at Rabbi Sachs and at what he accomplished? And second of all, in terms of the Rabbi Sachs legacy and what the dream is for the future, how do you hope the future looks because of what you're doing now to preserve Rabbi Sachs' memory? Rabbi Rose? Well, so I think about the the thinkers that were most influential for me when I began that journey into Judaism on an intellectual level 
Well, so the Rechik died while I was in Yeshiva in Shana Aleph, I think, or maybe Shana Aleph. And yet he has been an ever-present part of my of my intellectual life as a Jew. And I, I think Rabbi Sachs will play that same role because he spent he he invested so much in 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 being accessible to lots of different audiences. It could be that to to, to be influenced by Rabbi Rechik, you have to work very hard. Um, because he was such a, a sophisticated thinker. And not that Rabbi Sachs wasn't, but Rabbi Sachs realised that to reach a, ri- a wider audience, he needed to find different modes and mediums to, to, to express. So I'd like to think that that there will be generations. I mean, my kids are an example. My kids, I mean, they don't really have a choice, but um, I have a chavuta with all the big kids in Rabbi Sachs. And Rabbi Sachs is a real-life person for them, even though they 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 didn't get an opportunity to, to meet him. And I'm hoping that, that we will see that. Um, um, from every generation. We've spoken about Israel. Um, I'd like to see, and I believe that his influence in Israeli society will increase and increase. Every Shabbat, I walk into my shul and I see Israelis reading his books. Um, and it and, and it's just uh, so exciting for me. I, th- I think on Sunday, we're launching a video that was actually screened at, a, at an event at, at uh, the president's house with a number of Israelis from across the religious spectrum talking about how Rabbi Sachs was an influence on them. And it's really very, very impressive, and uh, and I and, and I uh, and we're working very hard to 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 continue that momentum. But I, and I also think that just hit the message it it's a fun thing to do. If you go onto Facebook, and I assume the other social medias that I'm not on, every time we post something, there's a, a number of comments, most of whom are from from Christians who have or, or non-Jews who are very passionate, who are touched by him and his ideas. And I really think like like um, like no other thinker that Jewish thinker that went before him. He will continue to have that influence beyond the Jewish people if if we continue to put his voice out there. Uh, I think that's dependent on us, and not just us, those who work for the Rabbi Sachs legacy, but but the, the broader community of, of people that are um, inspired and influenced by Rabbi Sachs to continue the conversation. Um, that that's what I I would like to see, and I'm, we're we're all working very hard to achieve. I mean, hopefully that will happen. Rabbi Sylvester, any final thoughts about that? First of all, just to echo what Daniel says, which is that in my minion, I remember when I first came to Israel as a rabbi um, and I presented credentials to the chief rabbinate um, and they said, we've never heard of Rabbi Sachs. Who is he? Um, whereas, and I had to get a letter from the Bet Din um, because they hadn't heard of him. Today, his name is is widely, widely known. And in my minion, there's always lots of copies of his books in circulation being read in Hebrew um, and also in English. When I teach Israeli students, when I first started teaching Israeli students, I used to translate because the books weren't out yet in Hebrew. Um, I used to get friends to translate Rabbi Sachs in Hebrew um, and taught lots of his ideas. And I remember at the end of the year, turning to my Israeli students who were at the Hebrew University um, and asking them what they'd learned that year. And one of them looked at me and he said, we learned that there is only one Lord and that is Lord Sachs, which I think was a fantastic line. And um, so I actually used it in an article that I wrote um, in, in a publication. And the editor of the publication was clearly very religious and very nervous that this constituted heresy. So the article came out and it said, when I asked my students what they'd learned that year, they said, we learned that Rabbi Sachs is a very nice chap. Um, <laughs> and I just prayed that he didn't do that. Doesn't yeah, quite I capture it. I was so embarrassed. But what it also says is, and, and this actually shocked me when Rabbi Sachs passed away, because I knew that I adored him, um, both intellectually and as a human being. I didn't realize 
that there would be such an outpouring of grief. I knew there'd be lots of him as an intellect. I did not for a minute imagine that he'd captured the hearts of so many people. And I think that's very beautiful. And certainly among all my students hear Rabbi Sachs endlessly. Um, but also um, I know that that among my contemporaries, so many of us went into the rabbinate um, to, to spread his ideas because of his inspiration. And so many of us are teaching it to the next generation. Um, and please, God, they'll keep teaching it. So I think it's very exciting. Wonderful. Okay, Joanna, you get the last word. Could you tell me some final thoughts about Rabbi Sachs's legacy and the Rabbi Sachs legacy? So I, I hope that um, all your listeners will be joining in some kind of um, event over the next few days um, as we as we come up to Rabbi Sachs's second yard site, Kaf Cheshvan, uh, Sunday night and, and Monday night. Um, we are, which is when this podcast is being released. Excellent, excellent. So this is part of the communities and conversation. We hopefully have over two hundred organisations and schools taking part this year, which is a lot more than last year. And and I think it's it's important that we encourage those message carriers uh, to continue to share Rabbi Sachs's teachings and his wisdom, um, because as you know, Gideon said, it's well beyond the Jewish community the impact that he's had and that he will continue, please God, to have uh, for for years to come. So thank you very much. I thank all of you. Two weeks ago, I had a panel discussion or a discussion with two people about Rav Shagar, is that's all, and his tremendous impact. He's somebody whose books I've read, and it was a nice it's a special opportunity for me to learn about him both as a person and as a thinker. Rabbi Sachs is someone with whom I go back longer, first of all, because he wrote in English. Rabbi Sagar's works almost entirely in Hebrew. But Rabbi Sachs is someone who was always so impressive to me and whose ideas have really influenced me tremendously. But until today, I really knew very, very little about him as a person. So I thank all three of you for offering me and our listeners the opportunity to know more about him as a person, to understand him as an individual. And I thank you all. This has been very, very meaningful and inspirational on a personal level. So Rabbi Dr. Daniel Rose, Joanna Bederosh, Rabbi Gideon Sylvester, I appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. 
I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. 